On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we talk with comic book artist Buzz, who you might know from his amazing work on Vampirella, the Justice Society of America, and more. Plus, we assemble an epic roundtable to break down, unpack, and generally geek out over Avengers Endgame. Now, straight from downtown Civic City on Earth 2, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 40 for May 2019. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that are cool and noteworthy and deserve to be celebrated. Do both yourself and myself a favor and subscribe right now to guarantee that you never miss an episode. There was an idea. The idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people. See if they could become something more. You know, it occurs to me that at this point I should probably clarify who I'm talking about. You would be forgiven if you thought I was referring to the Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and Box Office Juggernauts. Because as of this writing, Avengers Endgame has challenged or broken a stack of records around the world and has grossed enough to become the number two film of all time globally without breaking a sweat. Avatar, Thanos is looking at you and he's putting on his snapping mitten. So fans love the movie, critics love the movie, your Aunt Dottie loves the movie, but what I want to know is, do the sons and daughters of Jor-El like the movie? Who are the sons and daughters of Jarrell, you ask? And aren't they confusing things by running with that DC Comics reference of a name for this movie? Well, you see, there was an idea. The idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people. You get the idea. In this case, those people are a group of writers, actors, improvisers, and some of the finest people I've known and have had the privilege to perform alongside over the years. And when you're discussing a movie with at least 60 characters, you need a collective of about 10 reviewers. This lineup includes Alex Brewer, Courtney Dickerson, Jason Addis, Ken Groby, Natasha Rook, and Sam Turek. This collection of movie fans is spread all over the country, but for Avengers Endgame, they assembled for an incredibly spoiler-heavy discussion of Endgame. Seriously, so many spoilers. We now join our conversation already in progress as our panelists discuss Captain Marvel's new hairdo. How in okay, Avengers was, uh, was Captain Marvel's Ellen hair? <laughs> that is, a, that is, I'm two years divorced and I'm moving on. <laughs> I, was, I was surprised how much I hated it. I really was, because I liked Captain Marvel a lot. And I said that hair would kind of ru ruined it. It just showed up. Her endgame hair. You're yeah. Her endgame hair was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> what happened? Come on, guys. Find something else to talk about. That all you right. All right. Like, listen, she's lovely. You already failed the Bechdel test. I'm uh, going to, to take this preemptive strike on, on Captain Marvel's endgame hair to okay. officially... Call this order, uh, call this meeting of the sons and now daughters of Jorel to order uh, as we have the Avengers Endgame. 
Um, in no particular order, just to introduce and get a feel for everyone's voice on the record, uh, let's meet our players. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jason Addis. Hello, everybody. Was that your musical sting, by the way, at the beginning? What's that? Was that you doing a little musical sting at the beginning? Yeah, that was me. I was, did the first note to the Price is Right theme. Oh, that voice you're hearing right now, Ken Groby. Give oh. it up, Ken Groby, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, folks. All the way from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, surrounded by a stack of comic long boxes that I fear are going to crush him during this recording. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Sam Turek. Hi, everyone. It is I. And then huddled around one computer. Oh, my gosh. How can it happen? Um, Alex Brewer. Hi. Mm, Hello. That's real. And Courtney Dickerson. Hey there. And Natasha Rock. Yeah. Hello. Oh my gosh, you guys. I'm so excited. And there are multiple dogs involved. <laughs> <laughs> if they can make their way to the camera, they are part of the round table as well. All right. So, so some of you, some of us are are just hours off of seeing this thing. Jason, I think you saw it first. I saw it yesterday. Sam, maybe yesterday as well. No, it was Thursday, I was Thursday night. Thursday night. Thursday oh my night. Gosh. You're the first one out. So um, has it been difficult to not say anything to anyone about what I'm assuming is the only thing going through your mind, which is this? <laughs> uh, no, because I knew that I had this. Oh, and also... Okay, so this is, uh, this is the one thing I wanted to make sure we got in there. I realized that um, my daughter, Matilda, was the same age uh, when uh, Infinity War came out that I was when Empire Strikes Back came out. And so she had a very similar wait yeah. from the end of Infinity War. To, I mean, she only had to wait a year, and I had to wait three years. But, but we've, we've been in a... I really understand where she's at, which was she couldn't even watch other Marvel movies for, for several months after Infinity War. They were all sort of spoiled for her, and she, was, she would get too upset about how dead everybody was. Wow. So, so you've, been, you've been living a difficult uh, 365 days since last year. It's, it's, been, it's been real. And, but it's been a really great couple of days since Thursday talking things over with her and um, remembering things like, Hail Hydra. We just say that to each other in the house all the time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Curiously, it has nothing to do with the Marvel movies. We just say it to each other <laughs> around the house. Um, Jason, did you see it with your daughter? I did last night. Went with Shayna, and I had a similar experience to uh, Sam. When we went to see Infinity War, Shayna was in tears when that thing ended. Like, in tears. And I looked at her, and she was like, this is the worst movie of all time. Why would they do it? It was terrible. And I'm like, were you entertained? Yes. <laughs> did you like it? Yes. Why is it the worst movie? Because they're all dead. And she was so upset. And I was like, oh, so I guess you don't want to see um, Endgame when that comes out next year. And I reminded her that it's a comic book movie. And all of us who have read plenty of comic books know that we constantly pull things out of our rear end to, you know, make some things okay. Uh, and then sometimes we kill Superman. So there. <laughs> and um, 
Uh, I want to jump off that point then. So obviously we've all been around the block with enough comic books. And, and I also, when, when I was at a screening of Infinity War with, with my son, you know, the room is full of like teenage boys and they're all rowdy and whatever. But then at the end, everyone is walking out all sullen faced, like, I don't, I don't know what happened. So um, I need you to solve the issue of today's youth, Ken, and tell us why do they not, why are they not appropriately cynical to assume that everything is somehow going to be okay because Spider-Man is coming out in another three months? So do the math. They're just taken by story. You know, they don't. They don't. They don't need the context. They don't. They don't. They they either can't take in or don't want the context. They're just in the moment, looking at that, experiencing that story, and feeling what that story is making them feel. Amen. Amen, brother. All right. They're not cynical yet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. I think they, they're taking in the story, but sometimes at the detriment of common sense at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> there is so much common sense going on all around for this. We all go to see the Marvel movies for the common sense. <laughs> totally. But, you know, but Ken's right. Like, you guys are right. There's literally just like that Spider-Man trailer, you know, and you so you know that Spider-Man is going to be there, but it doesn't matter. Like, like the devastation, the devastation that occurred at the end of Infinity War so for so many kids. I was in that theater, and I was like, yes, you guys have now experienced that moment that I experienced when Han Solo went away, like, all in carbonite, and, like, all your dreams were dashed. And Kids don't get enough of that. Kids don't get these like legit cliffhangers where they don't know if their heroes are going to come back or not. And, and I think those experiences are incredible. And the fact that so many of our kids are deprived of this kind of, a, this kind of a, an experience in a film and the fact that we had to wait three years to find out if Han Solo was alive, that was, you know, that was a big part of shaping, you know, my childhood. And so I was excited that all those kids cried at the end of Infinity War. Right? <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about that too. Um, because the movie-going experience is at its most powerful when it's a tribal communal, community communal experience. So um, you, you take into consideration how, um, how, you know, there's a lot of screens in kids' lives and a lot of uh, dissonance and not a lot of actual connection. So when they're forced to watch something on that big a screen with that big a content, it, it, it's, it's got to impact. Not to be like, oh, oh, there's too many screens in the world. Get off my lawn. It's just, you know, as I encounter more people that have grown up with more internet in their life uh, in the workplace, you're just like, whoa, okay. Yeah, those are the, those are the, that's the play, playing field now. Yeah. That's right. And you, and you know, the other thing that's really interesting too is like when you think about all the instant gratification that, all the children have now like any any sort of cliffhanger that may have existed in a film is immediately taken away like the, the moment their episode ends and they can just start watching the next one um, so I am sure that with all the instant grat that's going on today that waiting one year was probably the equivalent of like five for these kids today where where they can just binge watch everything um, that said you know, three years for us was Brutal. In eternity, yeah. Eternity. It's funny because I can't help uh, thinking about all of that and remembering the, the terrible wait for the next Star Wars episodes and how I was like, oh my God, it's going to take at least 
maybe seven years and and then I was like oh I might die before it happens yeah. and then I finally got to see it and then it was George R. Binks and, oh, and you, wish, you wish you had died <laughs> all I know is that I sat there meet Joe Black with you just to see that thing twice Barton heck yeah baby <laughs> Uh, I, I do, Natasha, I, I like that you brought up the, I might die before this resolves thing, because that has totally gone through my head at various franchises, like, just don't let me die before, <laughs> or whatever. Or nuclear war. A guy that I went to grad school with actually died last week, and... It was very sad, but it was actually Gab that said, oh, he's not going to get to the end game. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, no. That is uh, wonderful <laughs> and dark. Oh, uh, right, let's, uh, let's talk about this thing. I'm, uh, again, I'm, I'm going back to uh, Team San Francisco uh, for the fact that you guys like just came out of that movie, practically, right? Three, three hours ago. Three hours ago, um, I am impressed that your eyes are no longer red and puffy. Um, uh, so uh, let's talk about some performances. And Courtney, let's let's start with you. Um, I, I know that this is this. Of course, Endgame has a cast of six thousand people in it, um, and we can consider this perform this conversation to be super spoilerific. Yeah. Uh, so so no need to dance around anything. In the category of best performance in a leading role, Courtney, <laughs> who'd you like? Mm. Doesn't have to be just one person. Um, Nebula was amazing. Oh, fair point. Good choice. Good choice. Um, yeah, Karen Gillan had a really good movie. We loved that whole uh, arc there. Yeah, and, uh, we're unstable. Um, Sorry, our interconnection is unstable. Just like us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I, I I loved the um, the development of oh the cliffhanger the sisterhood relationship. <laughs> well, in a couple movies. <laughs> but but I mean you know um, sisters have a shorthand, and I loved the the way that they they figured out what that would be for them and uh and the trust was there because of that and uh and so she was along for it um and uh i love that and then um i mean of course tony stark jeez louise yeah you know i it, it's interesting i saw i don't know if it was a review at this point or someone social media-ing or something but someone commenting on if every single one of these performers, if this was like their last Marvel movie, if none of them did another Marvel movie, whether they were able to or not, depending on the state of their character at the end of this movie, that like no one could walk away saying, oh, I almost had a good one. Like everyone leaves it on the table in, in one of the best possible ways. Everyone had a great movie. Like I'm going to nominate Jeremy Renner in this category also. Holy moly. They don't use the guy that often, but when they do, like he had a really, really good movie as well. Yeah. You know, I feel like in the initial movies, he was totally underused and, and I, and I was underwhelmed by his performance and I was surprised because I've loved him and everything else I've seen him in. Yeah. He felt he was underutilized a bit too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. He's just there on the porch and you just know what's going to happen and you're just waiting to see the flakes. 
uh, appear. I, I actually, I said, oh, I can't believe they're going to do this to us right off the bat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I started crying. Basically, friend number three, I was crying. So. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of true. As soon as, and that was the very first frame of the movie. You're right. Was uh, was archery lessons with his daughter, and like, well, this is this is here in order to remind us at one of the many many strokes of genius of of that script. As I slobber all over this movie, which <laughs> that script was like a. 1,000 piece puzzle that somehow was put together exactly the way it needed to uh, with no fat anywhere. Um, Except for the belly for the Thor. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> but seriously, they, they, they orchestrated so many dozens of callbacks that they just folded so neatly into the piece and just were, you know, if you caught them, it was incredibly satisfying, just insanely satisfying. And yeah. it, it was like they, it started off as a uh, as a as a as an emotional drama, and then it went to sort of a heist caper vibe, and then by the end it was like the most amazing, fantastic, like super. Oh, there's that one. There's that one. There's that one. There's that one. My God! And it was just like my mind was blown. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Let's talk about the callbacks really quickly. Ken, you brought it up. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot for, for uh, callback sequences um, that you really dug, something that was calling back previous movies. And that I thought was really interesting that that really ranged from big, obvious set pieces. It's the Battle of New York, uh, but seen from over here all the way down to the tiniest little physical movement or or just gag that as you said, if you if you knew what the movie was or knew what the reference was, great. Uh, and if you didn't, it also does not matter because it's they basically told you everything you needed to know. What exactly. um, what did you dig? There's, there there are innumerable ones. I totally froze for a second there, so thank you for giving me a long intro. Um, first, uh, the, the best the one that comes to mind that was strongest for me was right at the end when they uh, with the floating wreath uh, at the funeral scene. Oh. God. That's an amazing where you know where they had the um, the, uh, the the trophy or the um, whatever you'd call it that, that Pepper gave Tony proof that uh, Tony Stark has a heart. Yeah. Yes. I mean that how, that just wraps up. It's got to be like minimum three subplot lines, maybe six, maybe yeah. I'm just pulling those out of my ass. But the other thing that I thought was really fantastic, uh, the other callback I really loved was the fact that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the first Avengers movie, you've got Hawkeye pulling the Black Widow out of a out of a scenario where she's essentially a bad, not a bad guy, but she's a mercenary. She's an assassin. She's got red in her ledger. Yeah, exactly. And then that's exactly what Widow does with Hawkeye. What about two thirds of the way through the movie? And it's just it's just gorgeous. Yeah, it was so satisfying to see their relationship. Um, brought back in, in a way that really they hadn't touched on necessarily since first Avengers. You're right. Yeah, true. Uh, they, barely, they barely touched on the widow, um, the widow Hulk situation, which is, and that is what it is. I, I don't mind that not happening. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. That was, that would have been a, a little bit nice. I mean, they, they let her death uh, have an impact with, with Bruce, but 
I would have expected that maybe a little bit more, but then again, you know, there are a million things that they've got to check off the list in this movie. Um, I was in love with the fact that um, by the time that we're basically, we're back to the future part twoing the battle of New York, right? Yeah. So, so we're seeing, here's where we left off. Now here's what, meanwhile, just off stage, here's what everyone's going on. And as Marty McFly is climbing around in the wings, um, that the, uh, when the elevator, glass elevator door opens and we're basically looking at a scene from Captain America Winter Soldier with all those shield Hydra dudes almost standing in the exact same positions as they are in Winter Soldier. I, I thought, this isn't where this fits sequentially, but are we going to do the elevator fight all over again? That's amazing. It was a different kind of fight, a fight of the mind. Yeah. How, how smart it was, how smart was it the way that they went with it? Just how just seamless and just gorgeous. And even the way they handled him fighting himself, which could have been cheesy, but there was a, there was a lot of, there, there, there was a lot of beats to the fight and like he's, he's exasperated at one point, like, yeah, I know you could do this all day. And then <laughs> Fletcher is Bucky's alive because he knew that was what was going to unlock that whole situation. And then he gave me a little pow, and then he was out the door skedaddling. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think we see him being that strategic or that, like, sharp, Captain America, I mean, through, through most of the films. He's pretty much just, he's just got this, this very intense um, sense of ethics. <clears throat> and that's kind of what guides him through pretty much all his appearances. But in this one, he, he was smarter, exactly what Alex was saying. He, um, he was smarter. He was a little bit, he loosened up, you know, he swore like a sailor in this thing. I thought the same thing. You know, I, I attribute that to the fact that they did a really good job of showing off, like the fact that he was such a veteran at this point and he was a veteran that pretty much lost everything and didn't actually win that last battle with Thanos, with Thanos, right? So you got a Captain America that's just a little little bit darker, um, totally worthy, by the way. How about Captain America with that freaking hammer, right? Oh. That was a great callback. Top five moments, man. Oh. Yeah. That was delightful. But I love the fact that he kicks basically his, his own, like, his own ass all alike. Imagine that it was almost like he was kicking Superman's butt, right? The Captain America that we've been watching is such a Boy Scout. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning of this movie, before it jumps forward in time, he's like so, just so overdramatic and almost like a character of himself. And like this time passes and now he's a little more somber. He's a little more hardened. And then he confronts himself, kicks his own butt. And then as he walks by himself, he goes, America's ass. Nods his head and keeps laughing. That was Awesome. That was awesome. What a, what a great way to sort of show how his character sort of grew up and he's not just the same exact, you know, weenie Boy Scout that he's been throughout all of it. Loved yeah. it. Yeah. There was a funny weird little callback for uh, Ant-Man, which is, uh, it was like basically the running joke of, oh, this is not a truth serum. It's, it's something different. And then he was doing the same thing with time travel. And he was like, no, this is not, oh, yeah, I guess it's a time machine. Yeah, right. And, and it was kind of like each character really had its moment from his own universe and his own, like, film. And that was really, really deftly done. Even the, the seeing uh, 
uh, quail dance again, and then from the side, uh, the side view of quail dancing, going, he's a, he's a loser, right? Yeah, that's just so good. There's another Ant Man uh, callback, really small. Uh, Hope gave um, Scott a really hard time when he was describing uh, what happened in Germany, and he he talks about Cap, and she's like, Cap. Um, okay. and in the middle of the battle, she's like, you, you got it, Cap. And he just gives her the, the, the tiniest bit of side eye. And then we're on to the next event that happens in the scene. Well, and even, even Scott Lang had another round of, I don't know what to call you in this moment, in this movie, like over, over three, maybe experiences with him at this point, every single time he bumbles his way through Mr. Rogers, Captain Steve, mm, I can't get this right. But just one quick interjection. Speaking of Ant Man, how much did you guys want to see uh, like Luis doing a recap of the of uh, yes. Avenger stuff prior to that? I wanted him to drive the van where they're like, "Is there a shitty brown van on the battlefield?" When we heard the horn, I thought for sure, like, "Oh my God, they're going to get Luis in this thing." I agree. I agree. Um. So, of course, in addition, and as part as the callbacks, in a way, they also pulled so many people out of the mothballs to walk back into this movie for anything ranging from 45 seconds to a really, really meaty roll. Let's talk about, and Sam, I'll put you on the spot to start, um, most satisfying cameos and maybe even most surprising cameos, as in, I cannot believe that they got Natalie Portman to come back just to crawl out of bed in Asgard. <laughs> did, they? did they? Robert Redford did they actually? retired from filmmaking uh, like a year and a half ago. Yeah. And then, and then <laughs> fucking Redford shows up. Okay, okay, okay. One more appearance in the American cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Avengers. Nosferatu. <laughs> Redford shows up with his Nosferatu face. It was amazing. Oh. Yeah. And not for nothing, the worst hair he's had in any role. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just do a whole podcast on his hair? Can we just talk about the hair? It was like a oh. canopy. You could have stuck solar panels in the top All the president's fathers. <laughs> oh, Robert Redford, it's true. I can only imagine how many zeros were on that check that they gave uh, him. I mean, if this movie does have a budget of $300 million, then I'm guessing a fifth of that went to Redford just to say, oh, we're going to take that case, uh, Captain. We're going to take that briefcase right now. And none of it for his hair. <laughs> Not <laughs> any. <laughs> That's really his skips. All the money in the budget just to get you on set, we couldn't, like, actually... <laughs> 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 I do like tried to CGI how, it, but even that just didn't work. That's right. That's right. I, I do like sort of the weird um, redemption arc for Thor, the Dark World in general. The fact that they had Rene Russo back in yeah. a really great role. Yeah. I was so impressed that she was in for this. And they gave her lines this time. <laughs> yes, they did. And she was wonderful. You're totally right. I had not seen The Dark World. It was on uh, my TV. I watched the, the part of the middle of it, and it's it's kind of unwatchable. Um, and it, it's so interesting that they hadn't they hadn't figured out a really good thing to do with Thor until Taika Waititi made Ragnarok and just completely changed his 
character into that kind of doofus frat boy hilarious god of thunder um and now he's just going to be that and so they're just going to put him in guardians of the galaxy now because that's where he belongs i think that's i i think it's phenomenal i when i think about like the arcs of some of these characters there are a couple things that really stood out one was like fat thor oh my god i love it i love fat thor he was the dude that's terrible what are you talking about oh my god it was great like thor he loses his eye he has an eye patch and then he becomes fat thor it's true let's just talk about the range of chris hemsworth for a moment like this guy was so badass as thor in the beginning in that first film and he's just He's literally just become the comic relief, but like legit funny comic relief. He plays those lines so well. He does the hero so well. I got to give that guy props. He's, he is so entertaining. And then the other that I really, really love, the other sort of bizarre evolution is like Weird New Hulk. Oh my God. I think I Oh, yes. Professor Hulk. Nerd Hulk. He gets my, he gets my vote for like best actor in this role because- you know. Oh my God! I I loved every scene with Mark Ruffalo uh, as Weird New Hulk. It was great. <laughs> That's a Weird New Hulk. That's what the action figure says. It took it took me out of it a little bit seeing him with his like you know soda can fingers pushing <laughs> buttons on a tiny little keyboard. Here's your tacos. <laughs> like literally the scene where he hands the taco the other scene when he's in like the little the little truck like right next to uh <laughs> to rocket while they're going down to new asgard and it's just like this little buddy love moment oh so good so good i i think it's interesting that in in a movie that has to do so much already and wrap up uh, the 21 movies or whatever of the MCU so far that they did take time to try to do something new with a few characters, a la Weird New Hulk and Lebowski Thor. And mm-hmm. I will also add the fact that they officially put Pepper Potts into into the rescue armor yes. for the first time. I know that I know that the rest of the world hates Gwyneth Paltrow. I understand that in real life, but I was I thought hey I thought she was good in this movie. But every everybody loves Pepper Potts though. Yeah, everyone loves Pepper Potts. And I was really psyched to see her officially um, in this suit and have a really satisfying end for her also. Like her last scene with Tony, that was that was one of the few times I was crying. Yeah, yeah, that was good. That was, that. That yeah. was, that was a great scene. That was just a really well, well-performed uh, moment. It absolutely was. So, uh, so despite all this, and we sort of talked about some that we missed that we maybe would have liked to have seen Luis uh, is there, are there any other characters of the last uh, decade that you thought, oh, how come we didn't get to see, shouldn't they have found a way to sneak Odin or Quicksilver or whatever? Is there anyone that you really kind of wish would have snuck in? And I see, yeah. Ken, your finger yeah. is ready. In a word, Sif. Oh, yes. We haven't seen her since the first Thor movie at all. And she's such a major oh. part of, the, uh, of, of his apocrypha. And she was awesome in that movie, I thought. Yeah. She is. she is. I love I love Sif up and down. She's the greatest. And uh, I will never forgive her NBC contract for stealing her away from from these movies, especially was that, in this one. Was that a deal? What is she, what is she in? Uh, really she, bad show. She's starring in a show called Blind Spot that is going into like its fourth season or right now. And oh. I think NBC has been like, sorry, you're busy. Oh, that's her. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, but it opens the door for Tessa Thompson, which is fantastic. Great point. And she uh, gets to rule Asgard. Yes, yeah. but she doesn't have the hammer, and I don't understand why the hammer doesn't go with her. Uh, like Judge Judy? <laughs> no, it's, it's the, the power and the worthiness. It's like after that awesome scene where they're all trying to, to, to raise the hammer, and they make such a big thing of who gets to, you know, yeah. to raise the hammer. And I love seeing it uh, with Captain America, but I, I, you know, I, I feel like there's a terrible cultural appropriation here. It has Where's to she? go back to Asgard, damn it. <laughs> well, it's, 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 as you pointed out earlier, it's pretty awesome that probably the most, dare I say, Aryan culture and, and, and the Aryan Camelot has been handed over to a black woman. Yeah. The hammer. I thought this discussion was Aryan Camelot. <laughs> <laughs> Worst <laughs> drop group ever. Oh You're welcome, America. <laughs> I, I would have I would have said young Michael Douglas, but we got young Michael Douglas, so oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. so that was good. So I'm going to say Gary Shandling. If they, you know, I would have liked <laughs> oh, CG Gary Shandling, so that he could lean over and say, "Hail Hydra, Hail Hydra." <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to we we've touched on a, a little bit as well, but epic moments. Jason, I'm nominating you. What was the moment or moments in the theater? that uh, despite whether you intended it or not, you audibly reacted to something in the movie. When did you cheer? Oh, man. I, there were a lot of moments, but I think there were a couple that made me just, like, cheer because they were so just ridiculously unexpected or fun. Like, one was when Ant-Man just punched the shit out of that giant, like, alien. Oh, like, this yeah. The big battle, and he's running across and just punches the crap out of that giant, like, centipede ship and it just goes straight down and then the next thing like all I could think was like why isn't Ant-Man just doing that with everything right now like why is this a battle um but I loved that moment because I I felt that Ant-Man like the whole movie all he was getting was hey this is the stupid guy this guy is not very bright is he um so I just love seeing him kick ass I love that uh that's one of them I don't know. I, so the epic moments weren't, weren't really what captured me with this film. It was like all the little moments that were really satisfying to me were epic. Like um, when they finally get all the soul stones together and Tony Stark's being so careful to create the gauntlet and he's finally got the gauntlet and he's putting the last thing in and he's taking a deep breath and then Rocket all of a sudden is like, boom! <laughs> Everybody scared at him. And Rocket's just like, <laughs> like, to me, those little moments were like just the best. Putting some of these characters in unlikely situations together and seeing what happens with, with them together, that is epic to me versus the giant CGI like eye candy stuff. So those are a couple of my little moments that I just like, I just squealed with the light when they happened. I squealed when uh, Wakanda showed up and you, oh. you just see the, the three uh, shadows of them, like they're just like where you, you didn't know exactly who it was, but suddenly you were like, yeah. Honestly, it. they're so badass, they don't have to say anything. Like their silhouettes showed up and everybody went nuts. Like that's how awesome, that's how awesome those characters are. And the fact that like, I think um, Black Panther had like what, two lines in the whole film, if that, and he kicked so much ass. God, he's so good. So good. Yeah. It was yeah. disappointing that uh, our theater was totally dead, by the way. 
What? Yeah, no, but it was like no noises, no pulse. We made the most noise. Full disclosure. It was we the same for us. What? We went yeah. to see it in Walnut Creek, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just saying it was the same, the same, same deal in our theater. It was very quiet. But really? When they finally got to say Avengers Assemble, this was like, yes, thank you. That was, yeah. that was awesome. And I love the big. The two moments I loved the most were uh, the one uh, when Natasha pointed out um, where where everybody warps in that one moment where just everybody all the heroes warp in. It's people you didn't even know were going to show up. The Asgardians, the Ravagers, all the all the Guardians. Um, that was amazing. And then the A Force moment, which yes, which is to 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 those less geeky than Bradder myself. Um, was when all the women banded together and just started kicking yes. men's ass. That was gorgeous. That was a great shot. It was like, it was like what, like three seconds long, but it definitely, like when I left the theater, I was thinking about that moment, like, oh, that'd be an awesome movie. I would love to see them all just kicking ass together. It was great. I wonder if in a way that, like, that was the pilot for just to test the waters, to see who talks about that. Because that's always sort of been in the water. And right, uh, Ken, I'm so glad that you referenced A-Force because there were a few moments that were Easter eggs for comic book fans, not even the movie fans. Yes. Like at the end when Thor is uh, with the, the Guardians of the Galaxy crew and just casually says as Guardians of the Galaxy, like, well, that's a series right now. That's a series in print that I'm sure it's also like, if we were to say, just hear us out. If we were to say Thor joins the crew, you know, I, I think that these are these are all certainly designed to to juice us in the arms if we know what this stuff is, and even if it's just a throwaway, like that's a funny line. But it's also Kevin Feige taking notes in the back of all of our theaters. I think. Yeah, we, afterwards we were Courtney and I. We were talking about this one kid that's there, and we're like, "Who's this? Who's this?" Yeah. Oh, do you know who it was at the funeral? Yeah, well, Ken now we do, but yeah. Yeah, so, so that's, right, that's Ty Simpkins from Iron Man 3, the kid who uh, helped save Tony's bacon when he's trapped in Kentucky or wherever he ends up. Right. And we were like, oh, this is going to be the next Tony Stark. He's going to get to wear the suit probably in the, the next franchise. It's possible. It is. It's possible. That's sort of the beauty, I think, of what they do is that they they drop so many could be, uh, but not in a way that you're like, okay, stop because my head hurts. I'm being hit over it so deeply and profoundly um, that maybe they'll do that. Maybe they won't, and and we'll see. Um, let's talk about what made you cry, Alex. What made you cry at this movie? Um, God, <clears throat> yeah, the length. <laughs> um, no, I can reference one thing uh, that was very profound was when they put the little wreath with the with the Tony Stark has a heart plaque, like that really hit me. Um, I cried for Happy when Spider Man and um, and and Tony Stark were reunited. I thought that was just a just a really great moment, and I was just like, God damn it! It's in the middle of all this cold. Um, and, uh, God, there was one other, there was a, there was one other one I don't remember right now, but those are the two biggest ones. Um, I had a lot of catch my breath moments. I had a, you know, I had a lot of just, just like chicken skin, goosebump, 
moments, like uh, when they said Avengers Assemble, when when the, the, the Doctor Strange warp gates open and everybody starts coming out, and not just oh, the individual characters, when they pull back and you see the scale yeah. of this whole thing, and it's like, oh, here's a couple, here's a couple of circles behind major characters. Let's pull back. Here's thirty. There's everybody's pouring through. There's ships, you know, just and it's like here comes the cavalry. It's it's a it's a wonderful trope. It's Gandalf riding in from you know from fuck it, the east, the west, uh, and it's just that that great moment of of uh, you know it's all gonna be okay. It's it's dark, and now you have your backup and your friends and your family with you. Wow, you're totally right. That one image is like burned into my mind. That yeah, that exactly you described. There was the shot also with the um, uh, the Pegasus uh, was was like that was flying, and there was like this like a, a Spiderman with his his uh, awesome legs, and there was the, the the horse with the wings, and they were jumping over this like the crossover of all these universes was really awesome. And uh, the shot that you were describing, um, you could actually see their worlds. You, you didn't just see them. Yeah, you saw so the worlds. Oh, yeah, that was cool. It, the other the other moment that made me cry was the the scene in the uh the soul stone for sure um oh I, scarlet i mean because they both were i mean we've talked about this a little bit but they were both so id in the beginning and they were willing to sacrifice for each other everything and i just loved that that friendship and and how far they both had come it was just really touching and that was that was what gave me goosebumps does it does it make me a bad person that i cried during that scene because it wasn't jeremy renner's character no <laughs> <laughs> i gotta tell you like i know a lot of people love his performances but i i just felt like my couch <laughs> would have played hawkeye better I, it's like the one character that just never really gelled for me. Although I will say the very beginning of the film, so talk about moments that made you cry. So the guy who I sort of like least of all the Avengers uh, actually had the moment that struck me the most in this film, which was the opening scene when he's there with his family and they all turn to dust. And I just, it just immediately made me think like, what the heck would I do if I'm like, at a park hanging out with my wife and my kid and I turn one way and they're both just gone, just totally gone. That was so heavy because yeah. he basically was experiencing like what all of us as an audience were experiencing at the end of Infinity War. Uh, it was just such a really like heavy moment to start the whole film with, to just remind us of the gravity of what had happened. I thought that was a uh, just an, excellent and impactful scene you know even i, I had a tough with, moment when he did the first time travel experiment and heard his uh heard his daughter inside the house and went running into the house and then missed her because he was only there for 60 seconds or whatever it was that was that was the the one that was roughest for me to get through yeah, he was so close he was so close to seeing her again yeah yeah uh, uh, really interested because they they had a, a mother scene and they had a father scene. So they they gave Thor a moment with his mother to recharge and regain his you know uh, his strength. And then they they gave uh, Iron Man a, a scene with his dad. And and uh, I, I thought that was I mean it was deftly made and it, it was it was very moving too. 
and yeah. the and the mother uh, the father daughter relationship with Thanos and Gamora and Nebula like that was a dynamic that was also in play. Um, yeah, but the, the the mirror that you described absolutely. Yeah, the mirror of those two scenes. That's a that's a great observation, Natasha. Thanks for putting that. That there's so much uh, fine, and then seeing Tony finally in a new way as a dad at the end too, which is a new color, a very familiar color, but a new color on him that was really kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of struck by, in retrospect, looking at this in relation to Infinity War, now that we know how this ends up. So, so taking this full circle, at the beginning of this, we were talking about how, why don't all these kids understand that, of course, everything is going to be fine at the end of Endgame. We all know that going on. How come, how come they don't realize that? But now that we officially know how everything gets restored or brought back, that doesn't, that leaves us with some really big holes of actual death that went on, both in Infinity War for people that do not seem like they're coming back, like they're really dead. It looks like we've officially really lost Heimdall and Loki, uh, Vision, um, Black Widow, of course. Yet, interestingly, a lot of the future projects coming from Marvel Studios seem to involve those characters between the movies or the content that's being made for Disney+, Plus. right? We've got a Black Widow movie in development for the big screen, whether or not that's an origin story with, or not, we don't know. Um, there's a Vision and the Scarlet Witch show coming for Disney+, Plus called WandaVision. Um, so how does that all work. What do we think is going to happen next? Because it just wouldn't be a Marvel movie, of course, without us thinking like, well, clearly they're setting up X, Y, and Z. I, I think we're, we're, we're yeah. in that interesting place where um, the, that happens in comic books all the time, where the continuity, the sort of original continuity plays itself out, and then it's all kind of retconning and picking and choosing uh, which sort of versions of the stories you want to tell after that. And there's something that I've always loved that's so pure about the initial continuity where you can actually follow the story and the, the characters go from A to B to C to D. Um, but that just, can't, that just can't go on forever. That's sort of the nature of this kind of serialized storytelling that happens over years and decades. Um, so... Uh, that's what the kids who love these movies are about to find out is that like you you eventually run out of road with your original continuity and and in the movies of course with actors too they just they age out of being able to play these parts and so you've got to figure out a new way to do it um so i i mean and they seem to they seem to understand that they seem to get that like okay we've got to we've got to find some endings here for these for these arcs and for these stories and they they did it yeah. beautifully I, I've always found that when in doubt, just, you know, have a tesseract, have a mother box, and then anything is possible. Right, right. Yeah, fair enough. I think it's, it's interesting when you consider this, these uh, films going ahead without your Tony Starks and your Black Widows and, and your Captain Americas, more, most importantly. Um, you know, I, I have a feeling they're going to kind of go back to what they sort of did with Civil War and Ragnarok, which is the Marvel team up where, you know, it was a Hulk and a Thor movie for Ragnarok in a lot of ways. Civil War was Black Widow and Captain America. So I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, and I think this is a good thing, 
Um, just maybe a lot of leaning on one property or the other. It'll be Hulk and Ant-Man, which I'm already in line for. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I think that they're going to, these uh, new properties uh, are going to be uh, in the pageant stories, um, partly because of just the, uh, the principle of aging and the fact that you, you, you want to have younger people take the roles. And so, like first class. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so I think that they're going to go back in the past um, for these. And I find it fascinating that you, you're basically now going to live, perhaps, if I'm right, in an enclosed universe, which has an ending, which has already happened. But we're going to be living in that kind of like golden age before that ending that has happened. Uh, either that or it's going to be alternate realities. But... Uh, um, but there's something really interesting in the a generation that's basically going to watch entertainment where they're going to see these shows, but then they're going to know that there's somewhere the characters that they love have actually died. And I think that that's a, a different experience than our own uh, chronological Star Wars experience of, of mm -hmm. the passage of time or, or even the Harry Potter experience of death. I think, I think this is about death and, and what do we make of, uh, of our, with our fiction, how do we do we um, make sense of, of the end? But conversely, I mean, this is, this is comics, and especially Marvel comics. Everybody comes back in Marvel comics. Um, the, the Widow, my take is the Widow movie is going to be a prequel. Uh, the Loki series is going to kind of be based on the fact that Loki ducked out in the middle of Endgame, like literally escaped. Yoink! Um, and Vision the Scarlet Witch, I mean, you know, maybe they'll, they'll play the Scarlet Witch character like they've been doing in the comics the last five years or so where, you know, she has these mysterious powers and maybe she hasn't discovered the full extent of them yet and maybe they can bring back someone that is not around anymore. Type thing. Solved. With the Scarlet... <laughs> with the Scarlet Witch, um, so couldn't she just say, make Thanos depressed in that scene and then he just loses all focus? I mean, she had that moment with him. What was she doing fighting with him? Couldn't she just make him sad? <laughs> what am I doing with my life choices? Right? So basically, you're saying Scarlet Witch, maybe in conjunction with Mantis, the two of them could have just gone up probably and been like, let's talk about it. I force you to talk about it. Exactly. I think so. Natasha, I thought that was really interesting what you're talking about, and, and everyone is sort of just discussing the fact that it seems inevitable that one way or another a lot of these characters might come back. I will, I will vote. I will be the voice voting. I kind of would like to see them not do that for a while because I've always been really impressed by the storytelling of the MCU that they're willing to, to keep it moving forward, and, and every single one of us are writers and or improvisers uh, and or have played in this world of um, long form improv, especially where we've been coached and, and suggested and have coached over the years, make a big choice and move it forward. Why are we seeing this scene and this day in, in these people's lives? Let's see the motion forward and not necessarily rehash the same ground. Maybe I feel comfortable saying that because the MCU films have been so successful that it's sort of like a license to print money. So, you know, we'll see how the next phase goes. If, if like Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, doesn't bring in, you know, 175 million in its first two weeks or something, maybe they step back and go, ooh. But the fact that, that they're now sitting on the X-Men and Fantastic Four makes me think that it's going to be like Captain America who? <laughs> yeah, fair point. 
it would be nice to see them, you know, kind of bringing in new franchises and new characters instead of rehashing the old ones, which is, which is one of the issues, so to speak, with comics. You know, there's, there's very few new characters in the last, like, 30 years that have had staying power. I want my Squirrel Girl movie. Yeah. Oh, Great. yes. I'll take Squirrel Girl, though, and Kamala Khan. That's Bring all I'm them. saying. Bring them on. Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. <laughs> that would be super good. I love what you said about um, the, this idea of, uh, of uh, make a big choice and move forward. Because I think that's really been what they've done, and that's probably why they've been more successful than, than DC. It's just like they've really like like that's that has been how they they've proceeded. Even with the Hulk, they made a big choice and they moved him forward. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I all of these characters forward, and uh, and it's it's fascinating. <laughs> a giant canvas that they've been painting on like usually you see like like so they basically you've been treating the movies like comic books and and, and like a, a good run of a comic book and they, they had the, this, this uh, length of time and they have the evolution of the characters and they're like basically adopting the the model of the comic book uh format to the film and it worked so well so i i guess i'm, I'm sold on your theory i'm i'm, I'm buying it instead of being a Thinking that it's going to be in the past. Well, the pressure's on now. I got to make some calls. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you magnificent people. Uh, for risk of keeping you all night, and there is a part of me that believes that as soon as I stop recording, some of us are still going to talk for like another 45 minutes. Um, I cannot thank you enough for joining me, uh, a panel as large as the cast of Endgame itself. <laughs> Brewer, Courtney Dickerson, Natasha Ruck, Ken Groby, Jason Addis, Sam Turek. You are my best friends in the world. Um, thank you, sons and daughters of Jarrell, for ascending. We love you, Brad. Yeah, love Brad. You. Thanks for putting this together, buddy. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that comic book artist Buzz did more in his first 20 years than you did. That's right, I said it. He certainly did more than me. Young Aldrin Awe grew up in Burma, moved to the U.S. at 13, learned English as a second language, entered the comic book industry at the age of 15, worked under comics legend Neil Adams by 17, and then started work for DC Comics shortly thereafter. The legend of Buzz was born. And in the decades since, he's had wild and crazy phases, he's had introspective phases, and he's fought to make sure that artists get the credit and the spotlight they deserve, both in the comics industry and in the artists' alleys at your favorite comic conventions. I had the chance to speak with Buzz on the show floor at the 2018 Garden State Comic Fest, so please forgive the low rumble of crowd noise. And please enjoy this conversation with an incredibly talented artist who takes nothing for granted. You know, a lot of comic book artists choose the profession because they grow up reading comics, fall in love with them, and try to break into the industry as soon as they can. But only one creator that I'm aware of took that, uh, began that path in Burma and began their career at 15 years old. That man who took that path is known as Buzz, and here he is. He's standing right here. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Hello. <laughs> um, so fill in some blanks for me. You grew up in uh, Rangoon, is that correct? No, Reading. I was, I was born and, and raised in Burma. In Burma. And I was born in Rangoon. I see. Burma, okay. And then I migrated on. Took the big metal bird over <laughs> here back in 1981 when I was 12. Excellent. And 
to uh, New York yeah. and in, uh, Brooklyn, and I've been living there ever since. Ever since. Um, and uh, like so many of us, you grew up reading comics, right? Yes. You had a relative who would, who would hook you up? Well, no. Um, I grew up reading comic books that my father had collected mm. uh, from his youth during the uh, British occupation. And uh, so I, my first introduction to non-Burmese language comic books were, uh, you know, the, the old, you know, Golden Age books like Spy Smasher and, oh, wow. you know, Captain Marvel and, yeah. you know, Flash Gordon and stuff like that. And then I discovered all the modern uh, American comics when I came to America. And then I rediscovered all the classic stuff like, you know, uh, Kirby and, you know, Neil Adams and stuff when I got here and back right. issues right. You know, when I became a collector. Yeah. Like every kid. Wants, sure, you know? sure. Like this is the story of some, everyone in this room right now, for sure. Um, uh, considering, it, you know, it's it's funny when when so when you were a kid growing up then before you uh, came to the U.S. Since so many U.S. comics are like, yeah, we're here in New York City. Um, that culturally was that bizarre or different to be reading all this stuff. Or oh, you mean living in New York and then reading about New York? Well, no, I guess I guess beforehand oh, uh, right. when yeah. Oh right, right when I was reading the comic and then yeah. to be living. Sure. In, yeah, no, you know, you you start to realize, uh, recognize the landmark. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's where you know Spider-Man swang from, and that's supposed to be the you know Daily Planet, right. and you know it's like oh look, you know it's the six 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 building, and <laughs> yeah, you did uh, Brooklyn Bridge, you yeah. know you go oh this is where Gwen you know uh, Gwen Stacy uh, you know uh, died, and yeah. you know you fought you know Spidey fought Goblin, yeah yeah. And you See the landmarks. Yeah. That, that's always an interesting way of approaching it. First, you're like, "Do you see that bridge? That's where Gwen Stacy did." Exactly. That's the Brooklyn Bridge. The it's Brooklyn pretty bridge. famous. No, no, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> whatever it's called. I know, you know, when Ross, you know, when Ross Andrew drew it, you know, it's, that's it's, right. uh, it's <laughs> Ab absolutely. So, so you began penciling professionally at a very young age, yeah? Yes. Um, when I was around fourteen or fifteen, wow. um, I. I did some independent uh, work for a company called Blackthorn Publication, yeah, yeah. and they screwed me because that's what they do to a. You're dead to us, Blackthorn. Now, independent books. So, um, <laughs> I barely understood the, uh, the language, and um, I was doing some work for them. So what they had, what they had, a professional artist ink over my work, and didn't pay me. You know, pay the other guy, and I learned early on that you know get paid. Always get paid. It doesn't matter if it's your first work or your last work. Have that put value to your work and get paid one way or another. Or break their legs if they don't pay. <laughs> That's the Brooklyn. Yeah, there out. we are. There we are. Exactly. <laughs> You're a New Yorker now, yeah. right? A after that, um, I, uh, when I was about 16, 17, I went to a, um, a, comic, a comic book convention in New York, and I had a portfolio full of work. And I showed it to an art director named, uh, uh, at the time, his name, he was an art director at the time, and he's also a uh, working professional. His name was Art Nichols, and he was an art director um, at Continuity Studios at the mm. time, and which I didn't know at the time, but turns out to be the studio owned by, you know, the legendary Neil Adams. Yeah. So I was brought up to the studio to show my work to Neil, and Neil hired me to work on a couple projects at age 17. Yeah. Now, I had just taken a job working at Pearl Paint like a week and a half before that because I needed to get get some work, sure. you know. 
And then the next day after going up to continuity, I went and quit the job. <laughs> and then I had the balls to ask him, do I still get a discount for on odd supply? Did I work here long enough to get that? And they're like, no. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's... So that was my first official foray into uh, published work. Yeah. That's great. Well, even just, I mean, how much you must have learned even just being around Neil Adams and that crew, that's um, tremendous. It taught me, I was very, very scared. <laughs> I had never done any extensive work. Um, believe it or not, my first working in studio was uh, at, with Neil, but my first published work wasn't at Continuity. Mm -hmm. You see, what I did was, I did all the pages that Neil had asked me to do on a project. I was too afraid to show it to Neil to get this harsh criticism that everyone know about. But he was very, he handled me with kid gloves. I guess he saw something in my work. He was very constructive in his criticism. And just even in the short time that I was there, I, you know, I learned how to see things and how I found ways to improve my work. But what I did was I took all the pages I did for Neil and I went up to DC Comics and showed it to him and got a gig there. So I was more, I had no fear in going up to DC Comics unannounced showing my work, but I was more afraid to show my work to Neil. So I was like, I go to 45th Street or I go to 666 5th Avenue. 666 5th Avenue. Just, yeah. you know, there's like an ominous cloud of... So yeah, I, I that's I landed a gig at DC Comics. So, yeah. Man, man. <laughs> well, you had lived a lot of life at that point. I yeah. can understand why you're that brave to, to yeah. hop in. So then, over the subsequent years, of course, you've worked on Justice League and Vampirella and Axe Factor and Impulse, so many more. Do you have a, a favorite character or series to to work on or revisit, or are you always you know, looking for something new? You know, uh, looking back, um, I, mean, I don't really have a favorite. Um, I just like to draw. Yeah. I just like to create. And you know, um, there, there was a kind of a, a period in, in, you know, in my life as an artist. I think I took things for granted, and I was too busy. Well, I was too busy also being just uh, you know a normal twenty-something kid sure. who wanted to you know find girls and have a life. And and the art kind of took a back you know backstage to that and. Later on, when I got older, I had wished that maybe I should have pursued it more seriously, because you know, uh, you know, artistic talent uh, has a growth rate about how much influence you have and how much work you put into it, plus the talent. So you know, in my early 30s, I looked back and said, you know, I should be so much better right now if I didn't mess around and was a clown and chasing girls and not taking it seriously. Maybe I should, and I did. And, um, and then in between, when there was no comic work, I started to do um, advertising and commercial art. It's a whole different medium, yeah, yeah. you know, and I learned a lot doing that. And I had better work ethic as a commercial art and artist than I was as a comic book artist. Mm. Comic book art was like, for me, it was just fun, you know. It was, it, it was nothing to be taken seriously. But advertising, it's like, it's serious work with serious money, too, yes, you know. Yes. And, uh, a lot of people looking oh, yeah. over your shoulder in advertising. So when I started having to take care of my family, not of my own, my, my parents, I'm the only kid, uh, I started to realize that I can generate more income by doing commercial art than comic books. So I did commercial art for many years. And what it did was it kind of shaped me into a, um, a, someone with a better work ethics. And I tried to bring some of that back to comic books. 
by the time I came back into comic books, the whole industry had changed. Mm -hmm. You know, comic artists weren't making the kind of money that they used to. Um, because the books aren't selling in the numbers that they used to. Sure, sure. So there were no huge royalty checks. Yeah. You know, and so I was kind of still wanted to be a comic artist, right. but I'm like, I have to find a way to, you know, make make ends meet and still be a geek, you know, which I am, a bona fide. <laughs> um, so, but now these days, these conventions, mm. you know, allows us to kind of supplement that by being visible with our work and you have an immediate interaction with your fans not just wait for the books to come out right you know and uh that's allowed me to be a bit, bit more involved in it and plus you know um next march i'm going to be 50 years old oh man yeah the big 5-0 yeah. you know as asian we can hold it until 50 <laughs> And then when you hit 50, the wall hits you. You know, hit the wall. You know, so I'm, I'm sure that I'm going to wake up that morning after. I'll have a uh, mole with a hair hanging yeah, out of it. My eyebrows gone. will be down here. I will look like Ik Chang from, like, Big Trouble Little China, you know. But right now I'm okay. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you, I, I started to look back. You know, you get to a certain age, you start to see your physical limitations already. Sure. So I don't want to... And I say this all the time, I don't want to wake up tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, and then something happens and I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I don't want to have any regrets. Yeah. So now, you know, I do everything. I'll paint, I'll sculpt, I'll do every style that, you know, that, that I'm interested in. I just, so that one day, if I can't do this anymore, I can look back and say, I've done it. Yeah. You know, I feel more fulfilled as an artist and more complete as an artist. And that's what I'm striving for now. So. I love it. I love it. Well, I think uh, we've learned a lot about work ethic. We've learned a lot about your biology and oh, what you can you. expect to happen before too long. Uh, and uh, obviously, it's easy to see why uh, you're oh, a huge hit at, at cons and, and always in demand. So and I, uh, I love uh, meeting people at shows and making new fans and making new friends and you know, wonderful shows like this, which still focus on comic and the creators and the products that we create. So. Yeah. That's what it's all about right there. Thank you so much, Buzz. I appreciate it. Thank you. See you guys. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Many thanks to my guests Buzz and fellow Avengers Endgame enthusiasts Alex Brewer, Jason Addis, Ken Groby, Natasha Ruck, Courtney Dickerson, and Sam Turek. Special thanks also to Dave O'Hare, Sal Zerzolo, Eric Palomo, and everyone at the Garden State Comic Fest who had a role in putting me in front of Buzz, and frankly, for putting together a great show year after year. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ear canals to nerd out. It means more to me than you know. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like, and what content should really quit smoking the death sticks, go home, and rethink its life? You can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's social media channels. They are the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds at the 1.21 Gigawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to 121geekawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. And while you're nerding around on the internet, be sure to visit marvel.com where you can find more of my work as the writer of the Marvel Top 10 video series. 
The most recent episodes include Top 10 1970s Superhero Fashion and Top 10 1980s Hairstyles. So many mullets, people. The men, the women, so many mullets. Visit marvel.com to see who made the cut. Hey, that's a haircut joke. Just realized that. Hey, did you also know that every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcast section on iTunes? It's so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. And while you're visiting iTunes, you can help us out. Whether you're a subscriber or not, please rate and review the show on iTunes, especially if you have something nice to say, because that will help more like-minded listeners find the show. That would be lovely of you. If you're not an iTunes user, you can also find us at SoundCloud.com or on Player FM. You're probably listening to my voice right now thanks to one of those platforms. Browse the other episodes listed there and check out another one. I'll even make a recommendation. If you enjoyed this episode's interview with Buzz, I encourage you to check out episode number six when I spoke with Neil Vokes, another veteran illustrator who's worked on Robotech, Superman Adventures, and so many monster comics. He's got some great stories, and you can hear them on episode number six of 1.21 Gigawatts. Give it a listen as soon as you finish this one. Huge gratitude to the yeoman of the Y chord, composer and my co-producer, David Cisco. Cisco! You are and remain the best, Cisco. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all of those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome rocking out with the 1.21 Geekawatts theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. you.